So we're going to go out on a limb here and assume that you're enjoying this podcast. We're also going to assume that, like us, you're a fintech nerd and that our podcasts, live events, video series and documentaries keep you tapped into everything that's happening across fintech and connected to the fintech community. So if you're interested in creating content that informs and entertains, then you should definitely chat to our media team and get in touch on sponsors at 11fs.com. Full Circle is the customer lifecycle intelligence platform that's helping companies in financially regulated industries do better business faster. Financial institutions are under pressure on multiple fronts. Customers are demanding better experiences, competitors are making a grab for market share, regulatory scrutiny is fiercer than ever, and the cost to acquire and serve is high. Full Circle's new white paper explores how customer lifecycle intelligence can help companies find the right customers, accelerate onboarding, and keep them for life. Download it from the link in the podcast description. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. My name is David Breer. As you will no doubt remember from late 2019 to its eventual collapse in June 2020, the unraveling stories that happened after that as well, the financial services industry was rocked with headlines about Wirecard. It filed for insolvency in June 2020, claiming 1.9 billion euros uh, was missing from its balance sheet. And slowly, the whole story really came out inch by inch at that sense, uh, with everything from embezzlement, racketeering, pornography, and the eventual firing and arrest of CEO Marcus Braun. On today's show, we're going to be taking a bit of a deep dive into this and speaking to the man who brought it all to light, investigative reporter at the Financial Times, Dan McCrum. How are you doing, Dan? Lovely to have you on. David, thank you so much for having me. No worries at all. I mean, there's so much in there. Like, I never thought I'd be putting, uh, you know, embezzlement, racketeering, pornography, and uh, firing of a CEO into like a, a headline for a podcast. But here we are. This is an amazing one. I mean, it's a crazy story, isn't it? I mean, it's the sort of things you just like. Hang on, that can't be real life. Definitely. And we'll we'll sort of pick this up a little bit. And but but the reason why you're here today, and for anybody who hasn't known, uh, like I don't, I'm not into. I'm not a big book reader. I'm not a big book reviewer, but genuinely, I couldn't put this thing down. So, um, Money Men, uh, a hot startup, a billion dollar fraud, and a fight for the truth, Dan McCrum. I mean, this is what you're here to talk to us about today. Like the cover to cover, it's what happened, why it happened, and eventually what you know, really the result of all of this process was, right? Yeah. And I mean, thank you. That's so kind. Because it was this such a larger than life story that I wanted to try and get across this sense of this thriller. Because, you know, what it's about at its heart is this FT investigation that was unlike any other any of us have encountered. And it starts out, I just start digging into this little fintech company. And to begin with, it's like, well, what does it do? You know, is it a bit fraudy? Is it involved in money laundering? All sorts of nastiness. And the more I dig, the stranger it gets. And there's this sort of steady escalation where we go from, like, angry lawyers to hackers to private detectives, to Russian spies and mercenaries. And sort of, it's this constant series of events where we're sort of pinching ourselves going, is this really happening? And this sort of steady escalating battle where it becomes down to sort of, right, either they're going to destroy the Financial Times or we're going to kill them. Wow, that's a cliffhanger right there. So, I mean, you, you touched on this, that this wasn't just a, you know, a, a, a look 
and a, writing an article and, you know, a bit of a spat. I mean, this was seven years of your life, right? This was a slow burn of different things that you uncovered. And I mean, but where did it start? What was the big, like, how did this come across your desk in, in the first instance? So I can remember the exact moment. It's back in the summer of 2014. And I was looking for companies that were up to no good, you know. And I'm having a conversation with this Australian hedge fund manager, and he just says to me, hey, Dan, would you be interested in some German gangsters? And I'm like, yeah, of course. Can't say no to that, can you? Yeah. And so I take a look, and it's this small European payments company. Calls itself the European PayPal. And, you know, it basically helps you take credit and debit card payments. But it's wrapped itself in, you know, the magic of technology. We see a lot of this, right? So it's turned an ordinary business into something extraordinary. And some of these guys are looking at it and saying, hmm, this is a bit too good to be true. Yeah. So what happened from there then? So from a, you know, a, a hunch that actually these guys might be up to no good. I mean, how do you, how do you even start an investigation in that sense? Is it a knock, 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 uh, excuse me, Mr. CEO? Like the, <laughs> but like, how do you even approach it? So it turned out, you know, another guy gets in touch and he mentions the same company. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. And what I start doing is looking at what it said it was doing versus what it was actually doing on the ground. It had bought a whole bunch of companies in Asia. That was part of its big growth story. And when I look closely, the evidence that you found in like local filings or you know, local press releases didn't match up to what it was saying in public to the wider world. And it's like, ah, I think they're lying about this. And the phrase which um, these sort of types of investors who look for companies like that, they're called short sellers. They basically want to bet that share prices drop. The phrase they use is, there's never just one cockroach in the kitchen. So I started with that. I started pulling on the thread. Yeah, interesting. I mean, when you start pulling on a thread and it turns into a rope very quickly, right? <laughs> so, so what? So what was the the next phase then? So you're, you know, you're you're seeing a pattern. You're seeing a, a sense in this. You're you're investigating. I mean, at what point did you talk to them directly? So I start trying to talk to them, and every interaction with the company is a bit off kilter. So I send them a bunch of questions, and they're like. Hang on a second. Are you in league with these dastardly short sellers? Because it sure looks like it. And we're, you know, that's quite unusual. Companies don't respond like that. So like, okay, we've hit a nerve. Well, and I would have thought you didn't send it from a Hotmail email, did yeah. you? you know, it's like from the Financial Times, <laughs> Yeah, no, right? I've knocked on the door and said I'm from the Financial Times. And like one of the key characters in this is the sort of the chief executive of the company, a guy called Marcus Brown. Mm. And he's full tech visionary CEO. You know, yeah. he wears a black turtleneck like he's wow. some sort of cousin of Steve Jobs. Yeah. All these big pronouncements about the future. But I finally get to interview him. And one of the great things about being a journalist is you can ask really rude questions. So I ask him about his business. He blathers on, you know, blue sky payments, yada, yada. And after a while, I'm like, okay, so seriously, what's going on here? It looks like you're hiding something. Are you faking your profits? It's a fraud. And what was weird was the words were angry. You know, this is bullshit. But his whole tone was like, oh, God, do I have to explain again why I'm not a fraudster? Mm. And that's kind of weird, right? Normally, you, you'd expect people to be angry. But the thing was, back then, I was sort of on the outside looking in. And you can't use the fraud word in print without getting sued. So I wrote some articles which, you know, got a bit of interest. But nothing really happened. And then some other short sellers came along, they accused it of being involved in money laundering, stuff like that. And again, 
nothing really happened. And, you know, one of the weird things throughout the whole story is, you know, different authorities in different countries, particularly in Germany, look at what's happening, look at these allegations and go, nothing to see here. Mm -hmm. So they investigate the short sellers instead. And so really, and while this is going on, I mean, there's all sorts of crazy things, you know. Private detectives are intimidating people. We start to realize hackers are trying to, you know, sending phishing emails to us, everyone who's ever said a bad thing about the company. But the German authorities investigate the short sellers. The accountants keep signing off. And time passes. And suddenly this thing is thing is in the DAX index, you know, the equivalent to the FTSE 100. Mm. It's, you know, it's the next big thing. Finally, Europe's got a giant tech company. Yeah. And, um, and it's right at that moment, you know, right at the peak, it's worth almost $30 billion that this incredible thing happens. Sometimes when you're a journalist, you just get like an email or a phone call out of the blue saying, hey, I've got something good. And in this case, it was a whistleblower. Amazing. And, uh, well, actually, it was the whistleblower's mother. What? <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, I mean, she's this amazing character in herself. She's like, um, she was uh, born to Sikh immigrants in Singapore, right. forced into an arranged marriage, but gets fed up with that, kicks out her alcoholic husband and raises their only son herself. Amazing. And she brings him up to do the right thing. Mm. So he becomes this very successful lawyer goes to work inside the company in Singapore. It's a big Asian headquarters. And what he finds is weird. There's like guys inside the finance team who are doing strange stuff like faking contracts, you know, forging documents, sending money out to weird places, you know, sorts of things that you would normally crack down on yeah. in a large financial institution. Well, and seemingly overtly as well. You know, they, they weren't particularly sort of cloak and dagger about this. It was, you know, seemingly sort of quite open in that sense, right? Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, there's this moment where, you know, the investigation starts because the guy calls his whole team into, like, a meeting room and, start, and starts drawing on the whiteboard, going, okay, you know, as if they're, like, planning a robbery or something, going, okay, yeah, so we need to do some fraud, and this is how we're going to do it. We're going to move money from here to here to here to here. And, you know, and someone in that room is just sitting there going, uh... What is happening? <laughs> God. Yeah. I mean, I've been in many of brainstorming sessions, but never one about how to do fraud, mainly uh, how to prevent fraud. But yeah, that's that's bizarre. I mean, so like uh, just coming back to that in a second, because we'll, yeah, yeah. we'll come back to the, those moments. Like, how did you get the momentum? Because to your point uh, a second ago in terms of, you know, writing in the FT is a is a responsibility in that sense. And obviously with the brand and everything that comes behind it, they take this level of accusation incredibly seriously. So, I mean, how much work did you have to do internally to get the momentum to, to stand up to write that first article in the first place? Because, I mean, that, that was a big step in, in itself, wasn't it? Yeah, it took months. You know, the lawyer, Nigel Hansen, this incredible in-house lawyer we have at the FT, always kept me out of trouble. Like, the only time I actually almost got the paper into quite a lot of trouble was the one time that I forgot to run something past him first. Right. Yeah, always... Trust your lawyer, basically. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, that first story took me, like, six months of work. Mm. And part of it was, you know, doing the initial work. And then part of it is just going to say, well, hang on, how do I even explain this to people? How can I say this looks a bit fraudy 
without actually using that dangerous F word, which will get us sued. That, that was the uh, the alternative name for the, the book. It looks a bit fraudy. Yeah, <laughs> like, uh, uh, didn't catch on as oh, well. we should have done that one. Yeah, yeah that would be great. But, but how did you, I mean, because obviously six months of effort. I mean, I've had, um, I've had people sometimes say, I've got a hunch that this thing might turn out to be a thing. But after six months, you want to see some sort of return, right? So, so was your manager, you know, like, come on, like, you know, show me evidence or, you know, move on to that other story about how fintech's awesome or whatever, you know, like, what was the, uh, how did you manage that internally? Um, so my editor and through all of this, um, he's like this, this old school hack, um, you know, he's been around the block. He's got all these amazing, he calls them bandits, you know, his finance contacts who are a little bit unusual, mm. shall we say. And, um, and he was the one who was like, right from the beginning, just like, follow your nose down. So, you know, the first thing he does is when I find this evidence is he says, well, pick where you want to go and knock on the door. So he sends me flying off to Bahrain. Wow. Come back with some evidence. Like, I think I've got the story, but I don't quite have the story. And so he was always like, yeah, just lay out what you've got. And so in the end, you know, the first thing we did was like, okay, we're just going to frame this company as a puzzle. Why does it do weird things? What is really going on? And, you know, it's legitimate to ask questions. And so that was the way we started. Mm. And, you know, the significance of those early stories was that when it came time for the whistleblower to go, okay, who should I talk to? She saw the stuff that I'd previously written and went, ah, Dan's interested. I'll go talk to him. Yeah. So it's a bit fraudy. Yeah. And the person in the room's mum gets in touch with you like how does that happen like you know does he he must clearly talk to his mum about mum this is happening what should i do but why does she get in touch with you instead of him because he's told her everything that's happened like he lived with his uh, mum in singapore like it's a whole backstory but um you know he's an he's a great guy and she basically wasn't going to let them get away with it because hmm. she worked in bank she understood how they're supposed to work yeah and also, she wasn't going to let them do that to her son, you know, jeopardize his entire career when he's doing the right thing. So she gets in touch and basically says, then tells him, yeah, you need to talk to this journalist. And he's like, oh, my God, mum, what have you done? <laughs> but I got on a plane to Singapore and he agrees to talk to me and, like, lays the whole thing out. Mm. And, um, and and when you do that, type, I, I mean, I, I know yeah. I'm getting into like my spy fantasies ever so slightly in this sense, but but when you talk to somebody who's like in a, you know, um, it would be a compromised situation. I mean, you can't just rock up at like sit in a hotel foyer and just chat to these people, right? Because, <laughs> you know, like, so how, how do you even go about that type of thing? Well, it's funny you should say that because I literally rocked up in Singapore and chatted to him in a hotel okay. foyer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, fine. But, but we Retrospectively, were... Retrospectively, then... Uh, but we were being extremely careful. So when I went to Singapore, I just took like a burner phone, hmm. you know, an empty Chromebook, and then I had a special air-gapped laptop, so it couldn't connect to the internet, and it had sort of stuff on it to encrypt anything that he might give us. Because we were very concerned about, you know, Wirecard's technical capabilities. And was there any sense at that point that, I mean, obviously that, I mean, for for anybody listening to this, that sounds like paranoia, you know? I mean, it's like, you know, a laptop that doesn't connect to the internet, and, uh, you know, that sounds very paranoid, but but was there reason to be paranoid in that sense? Yeah, well, I, I think one of the things that might surprise people is the lengths you have to go to now as a journalist to try and protect your sources. Mm. Um, because, you know, we were worried about Wirecard, but also Singapore isn't a super safe place sure. to go. You know, it's a yep. bit of authoritarian regime. You know, 
that our IT security guys were like, yeah, under no circumstances use the hotel Wi-Fi. Sure. So, so we had to be just careful about it from that perspective. But also, you know, we'd learned that, you know, the whistleblower told me himself, he and his mum had started to see the same faces around the place everywhere. Mm. And they weren't sure it was that because they were being followed by, like, incompetent private detectives. Or that's kind of the point. Yeah. Just let them know that you're being watched, that intimidation aspect of it. Interesting. And, you know, and as we start to report, you know, we become aware of surveillance. So there's this moment where, you know, we started writing the stories. Uh, The whistleblower's given us amazing information. And we're digging into it and we're starting to publish things saying, this wildcard, it looks a bit fraudy. (laughs) And what the company does is it goes, oh, yeah, no, it's not true. But it also accuses the FT of being corrupt. Interesting. Says, I've leaked my stories to some speculators beforehand, and it's all this big, crooked plot to, you know, manipulate the shares of one of Germany's most beloved companies. So sort of accuse you because you're accusing them, essentially. But Yeah, I mean, turn that, the table. How does that, again, we'll come, we'll come back to it, but logically that that's never going to play out very well given what they know about the situation, right? So it's a, it seems like a strange distractionary technique, doesn't it? But Well, you say that, but what then happened is the German authorities believed it. Right. And so they launch a proper criminal investigation into me and my colleague, Stefania Palmer, in Singapore. And, you know, at that point, you're like, uh, sorry, what's happening? Investigating who? What? Mm. And... You know, and so the FT is appointing us our own criminal lawyers. Yeah. And we're sort of operating under this, you know, it's quite smart in some ways because it immediately meant we couldn't talk to the authorities mm. because that was dangerous. Yeah. So no, no chance for us to go and try and explain what's happening to them. And what it did is it sort of gave everyone in Germany who wanted to believe in the company this convenient excuse. Oh, yeah, no, these stories, the Financial Times, that guy, he's just corrupt. You can just dismiss it. Mm. It's that sort of Trump fake news thing. And it turns out it's quite effective. Yeah, well, for a period of time. For a period of time, for a period of time. (laughs) Didn't work out that well for Trump in the end, did it? uh, And neither neither Wirecard neither. But so so take us back to that moment then. So you're sitting in the foyer, you're sitting in the hotel, you're having that conversation. He's sort of confirming a lot of the things that you've heard from different places as well and leading you to, you know, very different places, oh, it was, different it sources. It was even more amazing than that okay. because it's, this was the first time that I genuinely had someone on the inside yeah. who's telling me how the company works mm. and what's going on. And he's sort of like, you know, I was sitting in this hotel lobby. It, it was weird. It looked like a sort of 1970s starship. Mm. It had basically no windows, <laughs> all weird angles and sort of beige surfaces. Yeah. And throw in a bunch of jet lag. You're in Singapore. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah. it must have felt very bizarre moments. Yeah. And we're both sussing each other out. Yeah. And, you know, he, he's similar age um, to me. I mean, I'm mid-40s. And he's like, um, you know, he's clearly nervous. Like, he keeps picking things up, passing them backwards and forwards between mm. his hands, you know. But he's got this sort of determined streak to him as well. Yeah. You can see he's angry. And, you know, as soon as he starts talking, it's like, whoa, this is really complicated. Go grab some paper from the lobby desk. And he starts sketching, like, organization charts. Who are the people doing what? Mm. Sort of filling me in on all of it. And it was sort of completely fascinating, but also really weird because you had this picture of this big, successful international tech company. And then he starts telling us about how it's totally ramshackle inside and there's never any money around and the technology's rubbish. 
and they do weird things. Like, I don't know if you've ever worked with um, a sort of a regulated financial institution. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of rules involved yeah. in record keeping. And he's like, oh, yeah, so basically most of our business is done over Telegram, the messaging app. Okay. And you're like, what? Mm. So the, And so it's suddenly it's like he's opened the open the doors and it's yeah. like, what on earth is going on inside this company? And it, it's an incredible moment. Yeah. Well, but that must be a, you know, a very vindicating, you're like, I'm getting somewhere here like this. And, and actually, at that point onwards, do you feeling much more confident about, you know, the eventual outcome of it? I guess at that stage onwards, it's like, a, like this is a matter of time now. It's it's gathering the right evidence and getting the pieces together to to build the case. Oh, there's quite a lot of work that it's going. Oh, yeah. but, but it's more these sort of like... Holy mackerel, we've got a story here. Mm. And so you, I can immediately tell, okay, there's definitely a story here, but it's a bit complicated. Sure. How am I going to explain it? And how are we going to prove it? Yeah. Um, and then he sort of, you know, and so I spent three days with him. My colleague Stefania joins us. And, um, and you know, eventually, the, the thing which is always hard as well, when you've got like the mother load of documents, it's like that moment of like handing it over and going, you know, a bit reluctantly, it's mm. like, you're going you're gonna to look after this. You're going to yeah. keep it safe, right? And, but also, you're going to do the right thing. You're going to publish the story. Yeah. And that was, you know, and that was the thing. It was like, you are going to write this story. Mm. And, um, yeah, until he hands it over, and then we have to run around and try and prove it. And, like, what can we print? Amazing. So when was when was that then? To, uh, um, at the six-year period? Oh, yeah. So, plus. so how far into the process was that? So this was four years in. Four years in, okay. So this is sort of... October 2018. Wow. And, you know, I, so I go back to the FT and I spend two months in a bunker. Yeah. Basically, you know, he's given me, like, the entire inbox of three of the characters. And I'm going through their emails and sort of reading, you know, following conversations, threads, things like that. And, you know, trying to work out what on earth is really going on. And there's this key guy who's um, called Jan Maslek, who's, like, one of the main bad guys. Mm. And, you know, the book is really sort of his arc as well. You know, yeah. it's about he come, he's, he's like the typical tech whiz kid. Like everyone who meets him says they're like, he's one of the smartest people we've ever met. Drops out of high school to start a tech company. Too busy to go to university. Too busy to learn to drive. <laughs> Who's got the time? He's one of those guys. And he's their like Wirecard's chaotic genius. And as I'm trying to prove this, he's always at the margins. And we know that he's the one who's been leading the pushback against us. He's been, you know, dealing with nightclub owners to try and set us up and, um, you know, offer bribes to people, deals with the private detectives. So we're quite convinced that he's the bad guy. Mm. But as we're sort of doing this, we're trying to write the stories, trying to prove that he's the criminal. And I've never met him. It's a strange thing to have, like, you're trying to get, the, we're like, we spent years in opposition to each other and never had a single conversation. Mm. But as we're doing this, we're like, oh, he's got some strange friends. And so we start to discover he likes hanging out with a Libyan militia. Okay. And he takes his holidays with this Russian mercenary guy. Goodness. Goes for a jaunt strolling around Palmyra in Syria during the Civil War. Okay. So you're kind of like, you know, at that point, as you start discovering these things, you're like, 
Oh, right. Um, this is quite unusual. Yeah. Well, it's been connected in a, uh, it's helpful for my career in like a LinkedIn capacity, but then uh, <laughs> being connected in like such a weird way for people. Um, I mean, that that must be really scary as well, because obviously, I mean, you know, bad guys in a, a financial services perspective, you know, is one thing. Bad guys in a, you know, Bond villain sense, yeah. you know, is a very different I'm just caught up with the idea now. Is there like a LinkedIn for bad guys, or do they use it as well? Maybe, yeah. Sort of wanting to meet fellow master criminals. I mean, if there isn't, then I reckon that's a gap in the market, isn't it? (laughs) There uh, we go. (laughs) But, I mean, at that stage, though, that must be really scary, because you're uh, you're not just in... And I've had this conversation a couple of times with um, different journalists that have been been on uh, FinTech Insider, which is, I mean how you separate your private life and your public life. It's one thing, this is a, you know, hot story that you're investigating, but, you know, the old sort of don't take your work home with you thing. Like, actually, the the risk was for everybody, you know, that was connected with you at that stage, right? Because I imagine the you know, the 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 threats or the intimidation, that wasn't just a you thing, right? Yeah, so it, it really started to ratchet up and it became quite scary at times because, um, I mean, I sort of, you know, I, I mean, there's lots of my life in there and sort of, you know, I talk about you know, my family, my kids, uh, my wife, who's Charlotte, who's like amazing, incredibly supportive throughout the whole thing. But also that fear starts to creep in, mm. you know. There's never an express threat. You kind of assume that as a journalist, if something, you know, if someone breaks your legs, that's going to be news in a way that esoteric financial crime isn't. Yeah. But at the same time, when you're like, so they're friends with the Russians, there's that voice in the back of your head going, well, if someone knocks you off a train platform, that's going to be very convenient for everyone. Yeah. And so you sort of, I mean, is it paranoid when you know you have enemies? It's a very strange way to live when you're sort of, you know, you want to tell your friends about your life and, you know, you can't sort of chat at a barbecue and go, yeah, there's this big financial institution which is out to get me. You know, people look at you a bit funny if you mm. say that. Yeah, I don't think it's um, I don't think it's paranoia. It's it's risk limitation, isn't it? Yeah. At that stage, you know it's happening. It's just how bad it's going to be, isn't it? In that sense. So, I mean, you know, fast forward to to you're about to press publish. You know, you're to your point. There's a lot of sources and work and everything mm. that's gone into this to get to that point where you're going to, you know, really put this out there and and uh, and uh, uh, kind of expose this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that must have felt incredibly scary, you know, and the only thing I can liken it to is submitting my dissertation in the university. Do you know what I mean? It's like so much of my life was in this thing. So, so A, handing that in to your editors and everything that went through, that must have been so cathartic, you know, like weight off your, off your chest in that sense. But, but what happened then? Oh, no, that's that... the worst moment. Okay. So you, uh, like when you have a big story, you, you know, you, it's exciting, you're finally going to hit print and mm. share it with the world. I yeah. mean, this is the big moment. And, uh, you know, and Paul Murphy, what's his phrase? Uh, you know, you know you've got a good story when you feel like you're almost about to throw up and then you hit print. <laughs> and, you know, you're doing like, we've checked everything. Mm. I think we're sure. We are sure, aren't we? Yeah, we're, I think we're sure. You know, you've, you've, you've done everything you can, but still each one of these stories was like a step into the unknown. Mm. And you kind of nervously are like, okay, what's going to happen? And so the first one, we hit print. And it's got the word fraud in the headline. Yeah. And, you know, the robots read that first these days. So literally within seconds, um, billions are being knocked off 
um, Wirecard share price. And that, you know, half an hour later, oh, we've just knocked 8 billion euros off the value of this company. Wow. And at that point, you really are thinking, God, this story better be right. I'll be honest, Dan, you seem like a nice guy. I hope I never annoy you. Like, uh, you know, like, actually, if you can do that in, uh, in that such a short period of time, then... Uh, but um, but that, that must be amazing, though, to see the... You know, you've pushed that first domino and that the impact then happens. So what happens then? But the weird thing is... So clearly there are a bunch of people who can see exactly what this means. Yeah. You know, hedge funds are like, aha, mm. we thought this was too good to be true, and it is. Yeah. But... You know, Wirecard did some very effective things. It turned it into a battle between itself and the Financial Times. We're corrupt. Our story's wrong. And so lots of people sat on the sidelines going, well, this is interesting. Let's have some popcorn and see what happens happens next. And so they convinced lots of people that, um, you know, that we were corrupt. But also they did something which I think has a lot of relevance to other situations, which is they persuaded people to focus on the amounts. So those first stories we were talking about, you know, 30 million euros worth of fake contracts. Wirecard had 2 billion euros in annual sales at that Mm. point. They were like, it's not material. It's not big. It doesn't matter. And the mistake was to focus on those amounts Mm. instead of the practices, which was, why on earth are guys in the finance team running around doing this for such small amounts? Isn't that weird? Why didn't they fire them as soon as it was uncovered? Mm. And so, you know, I think that was one of the, like, the big lessons, you know. If, you know, it's back to the, you know, cockroach theory. There's never just one. Yeah. That's, that's scary, isn't it? And, uh, you know, obviously those, those practices scale quite effectively once they've, uh, once they've <laughs> yeah. got them in place in that sense. But um, so, so what, what happened post-press then? So these things go live you know, you've said fraud publicly. You know, I imagine their lawyers get in touch almost immediately, uh, as quickly as the the bots pick up the, the the fraud word, right? So, so, and then it becomes a sort of a legal battle between you know the FT and Wirecard in that sense, playing that out. What, what, where does that leave you in that? So it, it becomes this real. This is the moment where it becomes this real sort of like hand to hand combat between us. Yeah. So they say our stories are rubbish. We go away, do more reporting. You know, so we we send uh, my colleague Stefania off to the Philippines, and it turns out, you know, she goes to visit some of Wirecard's very important customers, and she's like, um, "Well, it's got logos for a payments company in the window, but really, it seems to be the office of a tour bus company, and there's mainly just bus drivers walking in and out." And you're like, "This is the smoking gun. We've got it." But as soon as we publish that, Wirecard announces to everyone that it's suing us suing me personally. And so again, that squashes it. Everyone doesn't quite take it seriously. And, um, you know, SoftBank gets involved at one point. You know, SoftBank, the revered tech investor who has made a number of interesting investments, shows up and decides that, well, they've looked at all these financial time stories and we're going to invest a billion dollars into Wirecard. Goodness. Um, and, And again, so you're sort of, we're having this back and forth. But the thing was, even with all the pressure and, you know, all those worries, they'd made it impossible for either me or the Financial Times to walk away from the story. It was a matter of reputation. We couldn't let it rest. Yeah. And so we sort of keep going, we keep going. And then there's this sort of like this moment of revelation where I'm going through the documents which I've been given. And we've sort of gone back to them because we're writing the stories and they just don't seem to be working. You know, mm. we need something better or bigger or clearer. 
that that's worrying in itself, isn't it? Though, like obviously in uh, you know in the age that we live in now, the fact that something so significant from such a you know a trustworthy source could be kind of washed over with you know it is that. Trumpism, yeah. isn't it? It's the I'll do something shiny over here and try and distract everybody. But but still, like that can work for public opinion. But regulators, governments, you know, like actually the the authorities, how, how did they get away from distracting? Do, do you know what I mean? Because the you know Barfin don't care about a personal beef with you. Like actually, they've got regulation to uphold, right? So so I think there's a, a couple of things about these kinds of frauds, which is the way they get away with it, and it's kind of institutional psychology. So everyone around the table looks at everyone else and they go, well, Ernst & Young, one of the world's biggest accounting firms, some of Germany's biggest banks, mm. some of their biggest investors, some international very respected investors. Surely none of these people would be involved if this was a big fraud. Yeah. And it becomes, you know, self-reinforcing. By the time a company, you know, is worth $30 billion you sort of assume someone would have caught it if they were up to no good by yeah. now. And that sort of becomes proof of itself. And so I think that was what really worked. And also people bought into this whole vision of Marcus Brown, you know, the charismatic chief executive in his turtleneck. Mm -hmm. They trusted him. They listened to him. And he's telling, you know, it's all very complicated. And he's telling them there's nothing to the stories and the FT is corrupt. And I've known him for years. I trust him. Hmm. That's scary, though. I mean, as you say, if you've got a you know a top four accountancy firm doing your accounts and they're saying everything's fine publicly as well, you know that's that's a crazy. So the you know the network here at play, you know, I mean, how do you even pull the wool over a, an accountant's eyes <laughs> in that sense? Do you know what I mean that that seems really difficult to engineer, doesn't it? But but I guess there's a lot of people believing a hype, believing the story, believing the momentum. And, you know, somebody, to your point, somebody somewhere should have done triple checks on uh, on some of these numbers. But but we've seen this in previous instances, haven't we? You know, we talked um, before we started recording about something like Enron. You know, this happened in that sense as well. It's happened a few times before. But I wonder sometimes whether people's incentives, the people who are doing the incentives to check, being paid very heavily by the organizations that they're being paid by, probably isn't the greatest kind of, uh, you know, incentive structure in that sense, is it? Yeah, I mean, we could definitely improve the structure of like things like audit. And actually, one of the consequences of Wirecard is, you know, I think that's contributed to Ernst & Young now proposing to break itself up, yeah. separate audit from consulting. And it's an interesting question, right? I mean, you talk about responsibility. There are a lot of people who were paid a lot of money who have lost their organizations very large sums of money in Wirecard. Is it enough for them to just point at the audit firm in the light of all the evidence and mm. say, oh, well, I trusted EY? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's lessons for all of us. But, you know, it's also, it's an age-old tale, isn't it? Greed prompts people to look at something which is too good to be true and kind of convince themselves that everything's fine. Yeah. And you get one of these big ones every generation. You know, we need to relearn that lesson again and again. Mm. Well, you touched on it. I mean, obviously, the fallout from this has been, you know, very significant for Wirecard. But, but for the industry more broadly, 
you know, there are some positives. As you say, the potentially, you know, while EY haven't said this is why they're breaking these things up publicly, you know, you can't help but connect those dots, can you, in terms of, uh, and, and broader in the industry. Have you seen positive change that's come from this? Yeah, I think there's positive change. I think people are starting to look at a lot of companies and sort of saying, well, show me the money. You know, what is actually going on here? And there's less tolerance of that just sort of hand-wavy bullshit. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, no, AI? Yeah, don't worry, we're going to solve everything with AI. You don't need to know the details. Um, and I think also it's focused minds a lot on some of the fintech business models. Mm. You know, because one of the interesting things that happened when Wirecard did finally collapse was a whole bunch of businesses suddenly found that they didn't work anymore. And it turned out that a whole swathe of, you know, particularly UK fintechs were essentially Wirecard prepaid cards with a big fancy wrapper around them. Yeah. And so when that stopped, all of a sudden, all of those stopped working. Yeah. So it sort of slightly concentrated people's minds on, well, what exactly are these businesses? How are we regulating mm. them and all those things, which I think is good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, this is people's money at the end of the day, whether it's investors or or normal human beings, isn't it? So protecting that is is very sensible, isn't it? But uh, we joked about this beforehand. I mean, this is this has all of the hallmarks. And for anybody who goes and and reads the book, this has the hallmarks of a kind of a, a Hollywood drama in that sense. You know, inevitably, this is going to get turned into some sort of docu series, isn't it? I can see it popping up on Netflix imminently. I imagine, but. Well, that's, you're, you wouldn't be wrong about that. Yeah. There is a feature coming in the not-too-distant future. Amazing. Well, as long as it turns out to be like a like a Netflix quality and not like a, you know, star Hollywood kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> no, it's, daytime it's drama. Netflix like, quality. Well, so so who, who do you want to play you in that series? Because oh, so, so the, the documentary is coming. Yeah. Um, a series, that would be amazing. I mean, uh, you know, it felt like I was in the pages of a spy novel whilst it was happening. So to see it on the screen would be fabulous. But, you know, I'm not going to be so presumptive as to uh, to try and pick an actor. There's many... I mean, I, I'd, like, say the spy stuff, I'd push for, like, Matt Damon or Brad Pitt or somebody like that. You know I mean? It's got to be it's got to be that spy vibe to it. They, yeah, well, my friend... You'd, you'd be parachuting into Singapore and everything, like, a little bit more Mission Impossible. But, uh, but still, the main story, I think, would be there, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, my friends tell me Jonah Hill would be perfect. So, okay. um... I think I'll leave it to people more qualified to decide that. <laughs> I can't tell if that's an insult from your friends or, or whether it's a, a compliment. I think they probably mean it as well. <laughs> um, obviously, and before we sort of wrap up, I know we're going we're to uh, sort of uh, n- not cover everything in the book because we want people to go and, go and read it. But, I mean, this can't be the only story that's out there like this, right? You know, the as you said, there's every, you know, generation, there's one of these but actually in the world that we live in with the amount of money that was sloshing around from an investment perspective and, 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 you know, there's got to be other stories that kick out right, like this, right? So uh, what are you work? What, what's the next book? What are you working <laughs> on next? It's steady on. Let me, <laughs> let me finish telling uh, this, this story, story. <laughs> first. But, I mean, you know, I continue to do investigations for the Financial Times. Um, you know, I'm on Twitter, at FD, if anyone wants to uh, send me tips. And um, I'm pretty confident there are more frauds out there. See, I, I guaranteed when I th- thought of that question about four seconds ago before asking it, you'd tell me something in the crypto world because actually never have I seen NFTs, cryptocurrency, the exchanges, never have I seen more overt kind of uh, public views of Ponzi schemes. You know, like, so, so I mean, there must yeah. be lots of space in that, uh, that industry. I mean, the one 
the one word I quibble with is something in the crypto space. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm pretty crypto skeptical and, you know, every business model is either a hammer looking for a nail, which doesn't exist, or an outright Ponzi scheme, or probably both. Very good. Well, I'm looking forward to the next book when you get to it. Hopefully, it's not another six years since then, you know. Like, oh, but, let's uh, hope not. But there'll be all of the other things that are happening between that. But um, thank you so much for joining us, though, Dan. It's uh, an absolute pleasure. And I highly, highly, highly recommend uh, jumping in and finding the book and the audiobook as well that you've come out with. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I read the audiobook myself. That was yeah. great fun. So, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an audiobook guy. If I'd have known that beforehand, but I will go and jump on it again just to listen to you hear, uh, hear you actually say it yourself. Before we leave, um, one last question. I mean, obviously, going through all of this process, you know, getting the sort of uh, acclaim from a journalistic perspective. I mean, it's not long ago, back in your, the beginning of your career, sort of starting out in this space. What would be the advice that you'd give to, to a journalist trying to get into this industry, but also with the determination that they need to, to, to really uncover these things? So, I mean, being a journalist is, you know, just about asking questions and making sure you get an answer. You know, the, 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 the great lesson from, you know, the financial crisis, which lots of people learnt, was, you know, don't just accept the explanation that it's really complicated. People should be able to explain what they're doing. So, you know, it's a simple one. Uh, but, um, you know, my favourite bit of journalistic advice, there's two actually. Uh, one is from a colleague of mine, Simon Cooper, um, who always said, uh, only write one new fact per story. Anything else is a waste. Mm. Which is a good thing, you know, focus on the big bit of information. And um, always check your seat for your bag when you get up after a meeting. <laughs> because good. you do a lot of them as a journalist. I can imagine. Good good advice. Uh, and, I, I mean, I noticed you've got a pad, a pad with you now as well. It's uh, document everything, I imagine, in that process as well, right? Oh, yeah. Never go anywhere without a pad of paper and a pen. Very good. Very good. Well, again, thank you very much for joining us on FinTech Insider, Dan. Where can people learn a little bit more about you? You're, uh, you're active on Twitter, but also uh, where can people find the book? Uh, people can find the book at all good bookshops, uh, Money Men, a hot startup, a billion dollar fraud and a fight for the truth. And um, yes, I tweet at FD. But uh, also, if you want to read the um, the key FT stories, I've got my own website, danmacrum.com, which lists sort of most of the key ones if you want to follow along whilst you're reading the book. Fantastic. I really, really recommend the book. Super, super interesting read. And uh, yeah, reach out to Dan and let him know what you think. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for joining us. At this point, I think you can figure out where to find me on uh, online and various different places. But as for 11FS and Fintech Insider, you can find us on pretty much every social media at this point, or you can email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.